The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with the microphone. You're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. You can listen to us every Wednesdays uh, from 10 to 11 Eastern Time live. And at the end of the day, we archive the show. I have three guests coming up in this hour. My first guest is uh, the author of The New Geography of Jobs. He's a professor at Berkeley at the uh, University of California. And uh, The New Geography of Jobs, um, in this book he talks about the fact or argues that where you live matters more than ever when it comes to finding and keeping a job. And that the real divide in America today is not a class divide, as many of us think, but a geographical one. Um, second guest is going to be Dr. Terry Orbach, author of Finding Love Again, and uh, she's a best-selling author, director of one of the longest-running studies of marriage and divorce in this country. Uh, and the last guest is Ricky Lewis. She's a Ph.D., a doctor, author of The Forever Fixed, and her new book, which we're going to be talking about, is uh, has all to do with a gene therapy, uh, which is a kind of a whole new world order, gene therapy, how it works, the science behind it, how patients, mostly children, have been helped and harmed, and uh, how scientists have learned from each trial to get one step closer to the promise of a forever fix, a cure that whatever the person's problem is or the patient's problem is, getting at the genetic root of the problem so that they don't need further surgery or medication. So we have a big list today, but first uh, here with us this morning is the author of The New Geography of Jobs, University of California, Berkeley, Professor Enrique, is an economist, Enrico Moretti. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning. Good morning, Captain. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. Well, you have an interesting thesis in your book, I guess one that most of us, or at least I hadn't thought about until I read your book, uh, because I, as I said in the beginning, uh, I do think of the the um, the class divide in this country, but I don't necessarily think that, I haven't thought about the fact that the reason that people are able to find better jobs and sustain their jobs has to do with where they live. What is, talk to us about that premise. What does that mean? Well, the latest number about <clears throat> unemployment were not all that good, but they mask vast differences across American cities. At one extreme, you have cities where I live, San Francisco or uh, Seattle or uh, Austin, Raleigh-Durham, with a strong innovation-based economy and the labor force that is one of the most creative and, and best paid in the globe. At the other extremes, there are cities like Detroit, Flint, with shrinking labor forces and falling wages. And in the middle, there is the rest of the country that, could, that seems undecided on which direction to take. Now, what's interesting is that 30 years ago, the differences between cities were not all that large. Uh, sure, we had richer cities and less rich cities, but... In the end, wages for people were similar for a given level of education and experience. But today, these differences 
are, are, are large and they grow at, with every passing year. So today, choosing the place where to live matters more than ever. All right, so let's, get a, let's talk about that more in detail. So it really matters where you live in terms of the, the being able to get a job and to keep the job is what you're saying. And there are specific cities that focus, that cater to those who, have, um, who are looking for jobs that involve innovation. Is, is that what we're talking about? Yes. <clears throat> the, most of our... Uh, job growth come from companies that innovate. And these companies tend to be very clustered. They tend to concentrate in an handful of locations. Um, these locations have in common the fact that they have a lot of college graduates. So in this location, you tend to have good jobs for workers who work in the innovation sector, but also good jobs and good salaries for workers who work outside the innovation sector. Uh, even those who don't have a lot of education. And the difference can be stunning. Uh, for example, you know, 20 years ago, an high school, a worker with an high school degree uh, in a place like Austin and Flint were making roughly the same amount of money. Today, a worker with an high school degree in Austin makes almost tw- twice as much as a worker in, in Flint. And this difference keeps growing with every passing year. Right, how does that work? Because I think that, I mean, that point, I mean, that really, you know, hit home with me. So, in other words, somebody who, you don't have to be a scientist, you don't have to be some, an innovator necessarily to what you're saying is, if you live in those kinds of cities, you can just be a hairdresser, you can be a teacher, you, but you will thrive in those cities because it is an innovative city. How does that work? I mean... Well, uh, not all of us can or want to be a scientist or want to work for Google or a, or a startup. Um, but the reality is that when a community attracts jobs in the innovation sector, it gains much more than just those jobs. It gains many more jobs in local services outside the innovation sector um, in positions that include, as you said, the hairdresser, taxi driver, um, uh, home care specialists, as well as doctors, lawyers, and teachers. Um, I call this the multiplier effect, and this multiplier effect is remarkably large. For one high-tech job in a community, five additional jobs outside high-tech are created in that community and are supported by that one job. So, so just to be concrete, let me give you an example. Apple has 13,000 employees in a place in Cupertino, where, where it's located, but indirectly supports 70,000 additional positions outside Apple in the local economy, in these local service positions, and, and tend to be well paid. And so, um, remarkably, the effect that Apple has on the local economy is larger outside Apple than, than, than inside Apple. All right. Well, you mentioned cities where there is a lot of brain power, you know, like where Apple is located, San Francisco, Boston, Austin, uh, Raleigh-Durham, but not all of us can move there or go to those cities necessarily. You're saying that we have to be mobile if we're going to look for a job, so we have to know what cities are the cities that are innovative cities that attract innovative people as well as, you know, the snow, the, I don't know what you would, not a snowball effect, but it generates jobs in all other sectors. Well, what do we, how do we do that? I mean, let's say, you know, the average college graduate gets out of college, really should consider where he's or she is moving geographically, real important to move to one of these cities? Yes. 
I think that's one of the most important decisions that a person like that could make at, at, at the beginning of his or her career. The differences in the type of salaries that are available uh, across American cities are enormous, are two to one, three to one. The different type of uh, careers that are available are also enormous. So someone with a college, with, with just graduated from college this year, um, probably the most important decision they can make now is to pick the city that uh, is the best fit for his or her skills, which means the city that has the most workers uh, in, the, in the field that he or she is interested in. So what happens to those cities? Let's talk about the cities we mentioned, too. I think, uh, what, Detroit, Michigan, and I forgot the other one, but there are a lot of cities that are not doing well. So do we want to have a brain drain or uh, all these young people leaving those cities? Then what happens? Or how do you make these cities kind of change direction? Yeah, you know? that's, a, that's a great question. The brain drain, the brain drain is already happening. Uh, one important fact that uh, is not very much talked about uh, is that the American labor force, um, workers with a college degree are the most mobile of all. Workers with less education tend to be much less mobile. So when, when economic conditions uh, worsen in a city like Detroit or Flint or Cleveland, um, the workers with a college degree are the first to move out uh, because they are much better uh, able to look for jobs in other cities and look for economic opportunities somewhere else. The workers with an high school degree or workers who drop out from high school, they're much less mobile, and they tend to stay longer in those cities. And ultimately, this is costly, costing them a lot in terms of uh, foregone earnings. Um, the difference in earnings between those with a lot of education and those with not so much education will be much smaller if we all had the same degree of geographical mobility. It's, it's a form of inequality, immobility that has important consequences for inequality in earnings and incomes. So what would you, uh, uh, we've been talking about, okay, those are the college students and the ones who don't have an, a college degree. There's another uh, group of people that you mentioned in your book, and that is the immigrants, uh, the immigrant population, and that we are not doing the best for them, and they are not doing the best for themselves, but there are opportunities. Explain that. Well, today in the U.S., you see essentially two types of immigrants. There are immigrants that are very highly educated. They're in fact, they're more educated than the, than the average American worker. Uh, and then there are immigrants that are very, very poorly educated. They're more likely to be high school dropouts. So the first group is more likely to have a, a master's degree or a PhD than the average American worker. The second group is more likely to, be, to have dropped out from high school. It's a very polarized type of immigration. The whole debate about immigration focuses essentially on the second group, on the less educated workers. But um, the first group is increasingly um, important, and it's responsible for a lot of job creation in America uh, because these are the uh, entrepreneur and the scientists and the innovators that eventually end up not taking jobs away from Americans but adding to jobs for Americans. Um, you know, it... it if you ever visit one of the Silicon Valley companies and you look around and you go to, for example, the company cafeteria at lunchtime, you look around you, you realize just how much of the innovation sector in America is uh, it, 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 it's, it's based on labor that comes from places like China and India and, uh, and other countries. 
So in other words, it's very diverse, very, very diverse. Extremely diverse. Yeah. Uh, in fact, in some places, the majority of workers uh, is from, from outside. And so our debate constantly focuses on the group of immigrants that is highly, that is not very highly educated. But the reality is that instead of talking about whether we should have more or less of those immigrants, we should be talking about what to do about the highly educated workers, the, those who come here and effectively end up creating jobs for, for native for, uh, for native workers. Um, it, there are, there is a growing body of evidence, of scientific evidence, that suggests that um, uh, a larger and larger fraction of patents, of R&D, and of, of new technologies is created by workers born somewhere else. Now, the reason why they come to places like Silicon Valley or Boston or Seattle is that these are still remarkably creative and, and fertile <clears throat> Ecosystems, and so we should we should uh, we should definitely uh, nourish that part. But we should also let companies in, in those places try to hire the best possible talents uh, from all over the world, because it's in the interest of very other American uh, native workers. I understand that. You know, Professor, as I was reading, you're talking about uh, Boston and San Francisco and Silicon Valley. You didn't mention New York. Now I'm in New York, so I was just curious about that. Isn't New York is not New York one of the most or innovative cities? New York is in a, in its own peculiar way. Um, if you look at the number of patents per capita, for example, uh, New York is not one of the top ten innovation centers of America. This reflects the fact that New York, you know, real estate in New York is very expensive. So having labs in New York is very expensive. So companies in New York tend not to have a lot of companies that require a lot of lab space that they're not in New York. But increasingly, New York is creating an IP cluster and a digital entertainment cluster that are growing fast and they are, uh, I think, I predict, they're going to take, uh, as, as, as jobs in finance start shrinking and contracting, jobs in innovation in, in IT and in digital entertainment will start growing and taking their place. In part, of, in part, this reflects the fact that there are so many highly educated young people who want to move to New York, and, and therefore, and they're very ambitious, very skilled, and very creative. So, Professor, who, I mean, it all sounds, it makes a lot of sense, what you're saying, and also if one reads the book, which, by the way, you can buy, what, online, bookstores everywhere, Amazon.com, um, and we're talking to Enrico Doctor, or Professor Enrico Moretti, who's author of The New Geography of Jobs, um, Oh, I just there was one other point because this kind of goes against what everybody said when you know this the new age of of the internet um, and the global economy and we've talked about the fact that uh, or, or there's a lot of I guess um, talk about the fact that it doesn't really matter where you live because now we have the internet and everything is virtual so it's not really that important so this kind of goes against that whole uh, feeling or or what we think is a trend. It does. Pundits and uh, so-called experts have been predicting the death of geography for decades now. Uh, people have been arguing that now we have cell phones and email and Internet and Skype and video conferencing. And so we don't need to be in this. We don't need to live in Silicon Valley. We don't need to live in Seattle. We don't need to be in Raleigh. We can just pick wherever we want to live and then communicate with our coworkers we can all live in Santa Fe, New Mexico, if you want to, and, and then, like, telecommute uh, everywhere. Um, 
this line of thought predicts that the big innovation centers of America are going to decline. But the reality is that if you look at the data, the opposite has been going on. More and more of innovation, more and more of good jobs, more and more of venture capital investment, more and more of R&D investment are concentrated in America's great innovation hubs. And this, I think, reflects one of the most interesting and intriguing paradoxes of our times. As you said, this is a fully integrated, fully interconnected, and fully globalized economy, but it's increasingly also localized. So increasingly where we live matter more and more, even if we can communicate at effectively zero cost with any corner of the world. Um, we still live in a world where face-to-face -face interaction and the people that we bump into each day matter, and they matter more and more for innovation. Uh, I, I, I find it a fascinating paradox, and, and I think it's one of the, it, that's one of the theme of the book, and I think it's one of the, um, one of the great contradictions, but also one of the great insights of our time. Well, the, in today's economy, as you say, it's not necessarily, and this is what we've been talking about throughout the, you know, the show, what you do or who you know is, is not the important thing. It's where you live, where you live. So um, <clears throat> the, the title of the book is The New Geography of Jobs. Professor Enrico Moretti, thanks so much for being on the show this morning. Um, Thank you for having me. I enjoyed Yeah, that. anything you want to leave the listeners with that we haven't covered besides going out and buy the book and reading it? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, there's, there's a lot of talk about the inequality theme in the book. I don't know if you want to talk about it in, in, in your show, but I think inequality more and more reflects uh, geography, even more than, than, than social class. Uh, so the same worker can make vastly different amounts of salaries depending on where they're located. And so the, the difference across our, our areas, uh, as they keep growing, they also imply growing difference, but not uh, based on class, based on, on, on where you live. Where you live. It's really important. I live in New York, <laughs> so <laughs> I'll have to think about that. <clears throat> anyway, thanks so much for being on. Our, our next guest is ready to go. We're going to take a short break. Coming up next is to, uh, Dr. Terry Orbach, and uh, she's author of Finding Love Again. So uh, don't go away. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with the microphone. You've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on Voice America Variety. Dot com and World Talk Radio. We'll be back in a minute. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Do you need directions to solid financial future? If so, the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern for the Money Answer Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. 
If you're a golf enthusiast and looking for some great golf properties in the desert southwest, you'll want to make the Golf Realty Network your weekly stop. Hosted by Jane and Al Anderson, the Golf Realty Network is all about living where you play, on the golf side. You'll hear from the course pros and vendors, while the real estate side will bring you the top agents and brokers who know how to market or find your golf community home. Tune in to the Golf Realty Network, Wednesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety, and rebroadcast weekly on Voice America Sports. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with a microphone. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, joining me this morning is Dr. Terry Orbuck, and she's the author of Finding Love Again. Finding Love Again, Six Simple Steps. I have to see how simple they are, but Six Simple Steps to a New and Happy Relationship. Uh, she's a psychologist a best-selling author. She's known as the Love Doctor and is the director of the longest-running study of married and divorced couples. Uh, this study's been going on for about 20 years, since 1986, funded by NIH. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Terry. Thanks, Catherine. It's great to be here. All right. Well, you know, as I'm reading your book, um, unfortunately or fortunately, whatever it is, what half of the United States, 50% of the people get divorced, or another 60% re marry and get divorced again, so um, there's lots of, uh, I guess, lots of impetus for reading your book. So, all right, let's talk about it. There, The new finding, which you say, and I'm just going to list the premise, then you can take it from there, but apparently people who can't let go emotionally from their ex can't seem to go on and establish new long-term relationships. Is that the premise? That is the premise of one of the chapters in the book because what I found in this long-term study is that those divorced singles who were able to let go of the past, who were able to say, I don't feel much of anything for my ex, were significantly more likely to find a successful long-term relationship. So one of the really simple steps in the book is to let go of the past. And if you let go of the past, then you're much more likely to be in the present. You're much more likely to see people who are available to you. You're healthier, you're happier, and then you're more attractive to others. But what happens, what are the things that prevent people from doing that? And I could list three of my girlfriends who are having that difficulty. Let's say married for 20, 25 years, then they get divorced. It's not so easy to let go of that past. Or is it different than someone, let's say, who's young and 25 and has only been married a year or two? There must be some differences in terms of the marriage itself, how long they've been married. Just take that. Correct, Catherine. I think that's very true. I think everyone has emotional baggage, um, whether we're still married or divorced, because we have a past, and we have past relationships. We have things that have happened to us in our childhood. But if we're a divorced single, 
the more we invested in a past relationship or marriage, and sometimes then that means the longer we were with someone. So if you were with someone, married to someone 20 years compared to two, then we were more invested. We have more things in common. We have a house. We have children. We may have a business together. So the more we're invested in a past relationship, the more difficult it is to let go of the past. We have more reminders in the present. We have more things in common. We're much more likely to see friends or family members that we have in common. So if that's the case, it's much more difficult to let go of the past. Now, I think that it is possible to become emotionally neutral, but you need to do some strategies, to do some healthy ways, constructive ways in order to get to that point. For example, if you are able to do what I call blame the relationship, blame the two of you, rather than your partner or spouse or you, then you're much more likely to be able to let go of the past. So if you say, it's my partner's fault, he, she did this, or I wasn't doing something, then you're likely to have anger, you're likely to have uh, depression, sadness, you even might be pining away for the relationship. But if you're able to say, we weren't able to get along, we weren't compatible, we were too young when we got married, that's blaming the relationship, and then you're much more likely to be emotionally neutral in the present. Yeah, that's tough. Emotion, just hearing the term, emotionally neutral, not easy for all the reasons you just mentioned before because of the attachments you may have. I was thinking about this. Um, like if you're younger, your kids are younger, let's say, when you get divorced, uh, the kinds of attachments that you are forced to keep, let's say you're, you, have to, you have the kids every other weekend, so you're forced to make arrangements with your, your spouse or your ex-spouse. You have to organize things with him or her. You go to the same, you may be going to school activity, activities and seeing them all the time. All of those things tend to kind of, in a very practical way or physical way, keep you together in that case. Um, and so even if now, and taking somebody who's been married for 20 or 25 years, even though they have a longer history, they may be, they don't have to be, see each other on a daily basis in the same way because the kids are grown or they're in college, so that loosens that connection. So it's really unique, isn't it, or different for each one of these kinds of couples? I think it is unique um, for each of these couples or for each of these divorced individuals in my long-term study. The notion I think that's important to remember, regardless if you've been married for a short period of time or a long period of time, is that you can have contact with that person, but what you want to do is not become emotionally attached to that person. So you need to let go of the anger that you may feel, or you need to let go of sort of the positive feelings, pining away, wanting the relationship, longing for it to be what it used to be in the past. And Did so you find, for, Dr. Orbuck, that in that study, because this is a huge study, very impressive, 746 people for over two decades, that one, that oftentimes it's one half of the couple who like tries to engage the other one into you know, not be emotionally neutral, that this, you know, kind of trying to catch them up on it, because I've seen some of that in my practice, and even with my friends. 
Yes, it usually is one of the partners that wants to engage, wants to continue. Um, because it's a relationship, usually one or the other partner initiated the divorce. And oftentimes, because one person initiates the divorce, the other partner or spouse, as you're suggesting, didn't want the divorce, didn't know it was going to happen. Um, you know, oftentimes people say, I was surprised. Now, were there signals? Were there cues? Absolutely. Um, oftentimes, what I found as well, Catherine, is that the female or the wife um, was trying to send signals to the husband, was trying to work on the relationship, and oftentimes even emotionally disengaged from her husband while she was still in the relationship. And that the husbands oftentimes were the ones that said, I didn't know it was going to happen, and didn't emotionally separate until they physically separated from one another. And, and usually, I think, just, don't you think, the emotional separation in any case comes after the physical separation, or, or and it takes time, and it's a much longer process, and you're very specific about what you can do to become emotionally neutral. Let's go through a couple of those, because you say that there are emotional triggers that re-stimulate strong feelings about one's ex. Very true. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, if you look around in your present living environment, oftentimes there are triggers, emotional triggers, that connect you to the past. You have um, photos, you have albums, you have pictures, you have jewelry gifts that an ex gave you. And what happens is, is that those trigger you into the past. So I encourage people to take all of those items in their home, in their work environment, whether it be in their car, anywhere, pack them up, put them away in a closet or um, in the attic or have a garage sale or donate them. You are much more likely to be triggered into the past if you have those items in your present. Great suggestion, and I, but I have another one that you can't pack away, and that has to do with holidays. And I'm going to give you an example of a friend of mine who she was the one who wanted the divorce, and it, I think it was even two years, two years later. Uh, and it, Thanksgiving, you know, it's Thanksgiving time, and she invited her ex for Thanksgiving. And I said to her, why are you doing that? I mean, what are you, and, and it was just, it was that emotional trigger, Thanksgiving, uh, the kids are going to be here, so why not invite him? Um, which is exactly what you're saying, don't do. Don't do, absolutely. I think it's important to have boundaries. I think it's important to have separate households and inviting your ex to a Thanksgiving, to another holiday event, triggers you into the past. I think it's also confusing for children. If you have children, when that happens, I think they need to understand that mom and dad are no longer with one another. They love me as a child. They are still my parents. They are still involved in my life. But a romantic relationship is not possible between the two. Uh, so parent. what do you do in this case? Okay, here's another example. Mm-hmm. What about, say, you have been married for five, ten years, and you become very friendly with your ex's uh, sister or your ex's wa- uh, mother or father. Uh, and how do, what do you do about those kinds of relationships? Because you, I mean, that's embedded in the family, and do you have to say goodbye and not have any more, rela- you know, any more contact with, the, with your ex's family? Or how do you do that? I think it depends on how long it's been 
since the divorce. What I found from the divorce singles in my study is that when they, after the divorce, right after the divorce, uh, limited the contact with their ex's family members. So that's the sister-in-law, that's the, you know, the mother-in-law, the father-in-law. When they limited that contact, when they limited their involvement with those family members of their ex, they were much more likely to be healthier physically and emotionally, and they were much more likely to find new love. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to reduce that contact all the time, but at the beginning, in order to become emotionally emotionally neutral, you need to limit that contact. You can still talk to them, you can still call them, but not be involved in their lives so that you need to limit that contact. Very important in order to be in the present and find new love again. Yeah, important but not easy to do. And all this not easy. easy. Yeah, but it makes a lot of sense, a lot of sense. Let's go, I want to talk about, you talk about writing the, the angry letter to your ex so you can get rid of all of these feelings. How does that work? I think it's important to be able to get your feelings down, especially on paper. And so one of the things that a lot of the singles in my study told me is that writing a letter to their ex, letting all of those emotions out, how, what they feel, why they feel anger, and that how and that it has affected their present life is very important. Get it all down on paper, but then don't send it to your ex-spouse. Very important to keep that letter, throw it away, or save it, and then do the same thing again the week after and then the week after so you can see your own emotional progress. This exercise is for you. It's for you to release your emotions in a healthy way. It is not to send it to your ex and get him or her to respond to you in kind. Now, the last one which is really interesting because there's all this stuff about neuroplasticity and how your brain can change and you can change, you actually change the neurons in your brain so that you can act in a different way, right? So are you connecting this? You say that you, in terms of separating yourself from your spouse, you can actually do that, create new neural connections in the brain that will help you move on emotionally? Yeah. Let's, yeah. Yes, absolutely. So you want to change your behaviors. By changing your behaviors, you'll change your neurons in your brain. And by engaging in a new activity, and all really I found is that it takes one behavior to change, and it doesn't have to be a big behavior. It can be reducing one hour each week or day of work, and during that hour, doing something else. So many of the single divorced individuals said that they took an hour out of each of their days, they didn't work as much as they used to, and they went to the park and ate lunch. They went and worked out. By changing a behavior for at least three weeks, that changes what goes on, and you are much less likely to be in that routine, that habit forming behavior that you were in with your ex. And what that does is that opens up new neural pathways, new experiences, and the ability and opportunity to meet someone new. So you really are opening up your brain to new opportunities, new emotion. I guess we're new emotional 
feelings. Is that it? I mean, so I, that you I could, think yeah. it's it's all of that. I think first you need to do it emotionally, so new emotional opportunities. But then in kind, what happens, Catherine, is that it also opens up new opportunities physically to meet someone new. So my book is all about not just getting out there and dating again after a divorce or a breakup of a long-term relationship, but stepping back and looking and changing your attitudes, your emotions, your behaviors, and your sense of self. And when you do that, when you work from the inside out, then you can go out there and date again, and you're much more likely to find someone who's compatible to you. That is great, great advice. And, I, and I'm going to just, and I want, we have about three minutes left, but just adding a piece to that while you're trying to do that, sometimes the people who love you the most sabotage it. I, I remember when I went through a divorce, I, uh, you know, the, the moment that uh, my, and I, I was the one who initiated it, but the moment that he moved out, there are all these friends and family wanting to fix you up, and it was, whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> you know, I've been with this person for 20 years, and even though I, I want this to happen, I, I can't walk out the next day and be open to a new relationship. And I think that's what you're saying. I mean, there's a lot of work that has to be done, and it can be done, and obviously you really are very specific in pinpointing it in the book. But I, I think that sometimes others' expectations are very different. They think, think that you can just sort of, be open to a new relationship right away, and that's not the case. That is not the case. And I think friends and family members need to understand that they should take cues from the individual, that their expectations may not be the expectations or should statements or time for that individual. So get your cues as a family member or a friend from the divorced individual because it's when they're ready to trust and care for another individual that's when they're ready to get out there and date again. Terrific. Dr. Terry Orbuck, and she is known as the love doctor. Now I understand why. Uh, her new book is Finding Love Again, Six Simple Steps to a New and Happy Relationship. Thanks so much for being on the show this morning. Thanks so much for having me, Catherine. Uh, we're going to take a short break. My next guest uh, coming up is uh, the uh, author of The Forever Fix, and uh, She's a Ph.D., Ricky Lewis, Dr. Lewis, and this is her book, the, pa- the Forever Fix, is the first book to tell the fascinating story of gene therapy. So for those of you who don't know what gene therapy is, we're going to be, uh, you-, you will by the end of the show. Um, I'm Catherine Zox, and you've been listening to the Catherine Zox Show on, on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. 
You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show, voiceamericavariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Ricky Lewis, author of The Forever Fix. Ricky is a, she's a Ph.D., she's a geneticist, a journalist, a professor, and a genetic counselor, and her new book, as I said, is called The Forever Fix, which is uh, the first book to tell the fascinating story of gene therapy. I, I think most people don't even know what gene therapy is. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Ricky. Hi. Thanks for your interest in my book. And yeah, subject. great. All right. So you are, I mean, we, we wanna, you're a scientist, first of all, obviously, but this book is not, it can be for scientists, but it's also for us lay people as well. And uh, you focus on uh, a young man who was blind uh, from a hereditary disorder, and he's kind of the, sh- the showcase, uh, I would say, patient for this book. So let's talk about, first of all, why did you write the book, The Forever Fix, and why do we need to know about gene therapy? Well, the book has been sort of rattling around in my brain since about 1990 when the gene therapy started and when I first started writing about it. And I'd intended all along to write about a little boy with a devastating brain disease, but it was kind of a downer, although he's doing quite well. When uh, little Corey got his vision back, it was just the most perfect example. I couldn't have made something up like that to sort of vindicate a therapy that had sort of gone under. There was a death from gene therapy in 1999, and it shut down the field. What but is this gene little... therapy in real layman's terms? Okay. It's, it's, it's a lot easier than it sounds. Um, a virus is just sort of a ring of DNA in a shell, and researchers can replace some of the virus's genes with human genes, and then you put the virus on the part of the body that isn't working right. So in Corey's case, the viruses contained the gene that his body didn't make. They put him in the right part of the eye, and he got his vision back. So right, it's so very let's simple. Start, okay, so that's concept. how it's done through the virus. You put the good stuff on mm-hmm. the virus, inject it into the patient, and they right. cure, supposedly, or hopefully cures whatever their problem is. All right, so let's get and I'm, to Corey. He eight years old. What was his diagnosis? It was a hereditary disorder. Um, tell us about that. Corey had a labor congenital amaurosis, and he wasn't totally blind. He was very severely night blind, but he would have been completely blind by about the age of 20 or so. And he was pretty much in the right place at the right time. His physician at Children's Hospital in Boston knew that there was a clinical trial in Philadelphia that needed an eight-year-old, and Corey was seven and a half at the time. So he was really, really lucky, and he got enrolled in this clinical trial. The book is, is his story sandwiches the stories of several other children who, who were not as lucky and their parents had to raise millions of dollars to get the clinical trials going. So, so it's stories. It's not a technical book. It's more 
stories of families dealing with rare diseases. Yeah. There's some technology in the book. I had to look up <laughs> a few things. But, uh, no, it's a great tale. It really does explain, it really helps us to explain what gene therapy is. But, okay, so people would say, well, then why, you know, you're talking about clinical trials. It really didn't start till the 90s, but there's been a lot of controversy over gene therapy. Why? Where does that come from? Um, There hasn't been that much controversy. The problem was when the 18-year-old died and the controversy arose from whether he was adequately informed, the informed consent process. Um, the book goes into that story in some detail, but the researchers didn't tell the father and the boy certain things about the virus that they afterwards felt they should have been told, and it was really a huge misunderstanding. So that's where the controversy came from, but the technique itself, is it's just a new way of trying to treat a disease. It, it could be considered controversial because a forever fix would um, prevent the need for future treatment. So pharmaceutical companies are not exactly jumping on the bandwagon because if you completely cure a disease, there's no market anymore. So that's controversial. I would imagine that's kind of, that you know, the pharmaceutical companies, we're talking about billions of dollars. Yeah. I guess right, they'd have to jump right. on a different bandwagon or, or just right change course and become involved in gene therapy. So that's uh, hence the title of the book, The Forever Fix. But, you, you know, you're talking about the controversy, this one young man died because um, it is a clinical trial, which is different than something that's been, I guess, approved by the FDA for everybody. Right. Right. And clinical trials have the, the, the different nuances to, to, to when you have that, you know, whatever it is done to you. Um, what, is there anything besides the, um, and, and there's some dangers in it, I guess. It, it is, right now, it's, it, it is dangerous or that we, there are certain dangers to um, having or going through gene therapy or is it different for each disease? or her- It's different for each disease. It's different for each type of virus. Um, any experimental medical procedure has risks. There are no guarantees. And a phase one clinical trial is to test safety, not whether it works or not. So sometimes there's a little bit of a misunderstanding where in phase one parents expect the child to be treated. And, of course, it's wonderful if that happens, but that's not the goal of the trial. So there, there's always risk. I mean, every medical breakthrough that you hear on the news usually represents 20 to 30 years of work by thousands of people. Things don't happen the way they seem to be overnight. What are some of the, what are some of the diseases that they are using gene therapy for? In this case, this was uh, Corey Haas, 8-year-old, uh, nearly br- blind from a hereditary disorder and would probably, you know, was going to be permanently blind, as you said, I guess, when he turned 20. Mm-hmm. But So what are some of the other um, clinical trials that they use gene therapy on? Oh, there are several types of immune deficiencies that can now be cured with gene therapy, and there's a disease called adrenoleukodystrophy. There was a movie in 1993 called Lorenzo's Oil. That was the horrible disease described in, in that film, and that is Susan Sarandon was the mother too. in that film, wasn't she? Right, Susan Sarandon. That's yeah. right. So, so that's entirely curable as well. So you know, little by little, things are happening. And I, I did a quick search an hour ago on clinicaltrials.gov, which I do about once a week. There are 2,700 gene therapy trials underway, and I made a list of the types of diseases, and it's everything under the sun. So, I was glad to see the uptick in the numbers there. Does that include things like heart disease and cancer? 
Yep, lots of cancers. In fact, I'd say just eyeballing it, about half the list of treatments for cancers and immune deficiencies and inflammatory conditions, a lot of eye diseases because the eye is easier to treat than some other parts of the body. So it's a robust technology. I mean, I mean, you're a scientist, you're a journalist, you have all this stuff accessible to you, you know where to look. But let's say someone's listening to the show and they want to... Uh, you know, find out besides reading your book and then go on and find out more about where these clinical trials are done. How much do they cost? Do insurance companies pay for it? Or how does that work? Let's say you're sitting here with a, listening to the show with a disease and you want to find out whether maybe you'd be eligible for this gene therapy. What would you do? Well, it doesn't cost anything because it's an experiment. You're helping medical science. It has nothing to do with insurance. Clinicaltrials.gov is technical, but it'll give you names, email addresses, websites, and phone numbers, and a patient can skip all the doctors for the moment, go right to the clinical trial, get the information on who's doing what, where, march into the doctor's office and say, so-and-so in Philadelphia is testing for my disease, where do I sign up? Or there are websites. There's a group called the Genetic Alliance that's a wonderful resource And if you just Google rare diseases, there's the National Organization of Rare Diseases. There's tons of information on the web. So so patients really, really can educate themselves and go in and tell their doctors where to look. Because you might find that some physicians are not all that familiar with genetics. Yeah, and I think you make the assumption that they are, and I think I think you pointed that out in the book as well. You can't make those assumptions. You have to right. be, yeah, you have to, you know, you have to be the one who's sort of directing your own medical um, treatment, and, uh, and and now it's much more easy to do that to access it because you do have the internet right, available. But um, Ricky, are these places mostly in, in major cities like you talk Children's Hospital in Boston? I think. Uh, Corey went to Children's Hospital at University of Pennsylvania. Are they right. at the major medical centers? I would assume that's where they're doing it. Yeah, they, they, they are at the major medical centers. They're not only in the U.S. I mean, when I give lectures, a lot of times I'm asked if other countries are copying us, and it's actually the other way around. A lot of the groundbreaking work has been done in France, for example. And the first people cured of Corey's disease was at um, Moorfields Eye Hospital in London. So it is an international kind of an effort. Which, yeah, and, and I assume that they share, obviously they share the information. Right. Yeah. So, a lot of collaboration. Collaboration. Yeah. There is good collaboration. So what's your prediction as a scientist? What do you think? When is this going to, now we're talking about clinical trials. When do you think it's going to become sort of everyday medical treatment, gene therapy? Well, everyday medical treatment, I would say 10 years. I've actually asked Corey's doctors that. They think the um, first approval we're all thinking will be for Corey's disease, and that probably three to five years because they have to treat more people. They're treating people of all ages now. The results are spectacular, but they need to build the numbers. And the you know, researchers have vowed not to take any money for any of this. They've already got enough gene therapy to treat everyone in the world with Corey's type of blindness. What a great story. I mean, it is, the other thing is, story. you know, and I think... Um, I don't know if this is related, but you mentioned rare diseases and that there's a lot of work going on with rare diseases. I think it's important to bring this up, too. People think, well, all the rare diseases, why, you know, okay, but there are only a few thousand people who are affected by these diseases. Why should we spend time on that? I think I want to emphasize, because I think this is an important point, that when you do research on rare diseases, that kind of research translates also to diseases that affect many of us, and, and you never know when, that, when or how that's going to happen. That's right. Right. You said that better than I could. That's great. <laughs> there are uh, 30 million people in the U.S. with 
rare diseases. There are 7,000 rare diseases, and each one is kind of a canary in a coal mine for more common conditions. Oftentimes, it's the single gene diseases that are studied because we just know more about them. We know the mechanism. So if we can cure one of those diseases, such as Corey's disease, we can apply the same technology to something like age-related macular degeneration that affects 20 million people. So everything we learn on a rare disease, almost everything, translates into a more common one. Yep, yeah, and that that is going to be a huge problem, obviously, with the aging population. Right. Um, and I guess there already is one, but uh, even more so with the, with with the baby boomers. Um, you know, we covered a lot in just a short time. Is there anything that that, that we've left out or that you'd like to just share with us that that I haven't asked you? The, oh, well, the right one question. thing. That- yeah, but no one has asked me, and I read I read about your show. Is that when I was writing the book, a feminist theme sort of emerged that I didn't even know was there, and the book tells the stories of a number of truly incredible women that that are making this field happen. It's it's it just I'm just the reporter. That's just I'm not trying to ignore men, but they kind of jumped out at me. There's so many of them. There's Corey's doctor. There's the, the wonderful mothers of some of the children. There's um, a woman named Lori Sames, whose little girl is one out of 54 in the world who has this horrible spinal cord disease, and her fundraising is not to be believed. There's um, yeah, a doctor named Paula Leone who's leading the research on Canavan disease today, but the disease was actually discovered by another woman, a pathologist, in 1921, and she never rose above the rank of assistant because back then nobody thought a woman could rise above that rank. So somehow the book sort of wrote itself. I felt like I was just the vessel that it was written through and the great women just emerged as I kept writing. So I like that part of the book. It's also a book about the benefits of animal research. Corey would not have his vision were it not for sheepdogs. Sheepdogs have a natural version of his disease and the year that Corey was born, two months before he was born, the first sheepdog was cured of blindness with the gene therapy that he would eventually undergo. And the dogs naturally have the disease. No one gives it to them. And when they're better, they're given away. I've seen this happen to the families with the blind children. So it's a wonderful, wonderful animal research story with a happy ending. Well, uh, Ricky, I'm glad you brought both of those examples up because I don't think anyone would have made the connection. Now, the whole thing about women and being pioneers in the field, you have to wonder... If, why? You know, is there something that particularly that draws them to, to this field? Um, or, you know, is it just serendipity? I don't know. I think it might have just been coincidence. I mean, there, there are strong male characters in the book as well, but there just seem to be so many of them. Another example is the Lorenzo's oil disease, where um, three sisters that have the disease affecting three little boys in their family, even though their own children couldn't be helped, they made the gene therapy happen saving other little boys. So it was just, you know, a lot of really nice stories in there. I mean, my book yeah. has some of the tragedies. It's the 18-year-old chapter, the, the, the chapter on the 18-year-old who died, it's, it's just absolutely devastating, but it does get happy, I promise. It gets happy when you get to the dogs. And the other woman is Christina Narfstrom. She's the one who discovered the disease in the dogs, and she had her work pretty much Someone took credit for it that shouldn't have, and I go into that as well. Yeah, and that happens a lot, doesn't it? That oh, yeah. People taking credit yeah. for other people's work, and I think even right. you mentioned particularly women and the one woman who was a pioneer, but she was only 
could be an assistant because she was a woman. What was? But right. you know, it was the same. It wasn't. I think even Einstein, one of his wives, they said probably had more to do with the theory of relativity than he. But she would never <laughs> right. get credit for it. So what else is new? But anyway, you do. You have all those themes in the book, which makes it really interesting. That this, yeah. So I, I just want to, you know, for listeners, it's it's really a, a book that tackles a lot of issues, a lot of different themes. And the thing about the the dogs too, because you know, very often there's a lot of, uh, I guess, protest against using animals for uh, experimentation. And here, here's a great, you know, that something right. probably, yeah, that has a really good ending when it comes to that. So um, the forever fix. Gene Therapy, and The Boy Who Saved It. Great book. You can buy this online, bookstores everywhere. But do you have, Ricky, um, a website that we can go to that is a reference for the yes, book and maybe other work you're doing? Yeah, I update all the stories. In fact, there's a great story on there right now. One of the little boys who was treated with gene therapy, and I've covered him in my textbook since he's three years old. He is 14, and he just graduated middle school a couple of days ago. So it's and called what was Max. disease, or is Canavan disease. He was not expected to live past the age of eight, and he had two gene therapies that and so what's far Canavan have saved his disease? Life. It it is a horrible, horrible disease. It's um, it's a brain disorder, and the little children are are just never really normal. They can't really move. Max can't do very much except move his eyes, but his facial expressions you'll see on the website. It's www.rickylewis.com. His facial expressions tell you that his his brain is alive and well. He's very, very alert, and he's smart, and he could use computers and things to communicate. So that brings up another ethical question. You know, do you want to partially cure somebody? I mean, without the gene therapy, this this young man would not be alive, but he is severely restricted in what he can do. Well, there are lots of issues, yes. You bring up, you, there are a lot of answers in the book, and then there are lots of questions. Lot of questions. That's really good. I love it. We have to say goodbye. Really okay. a pleasure to talk to you this morning. The Forever Fix by Ricky Lewis, Ph.D. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you very much. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show here on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. I hope you enjoyed the morning and our guests. Have a good week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you have enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.